0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Daniel, and uh, if we haven't met, I'd like to meet you, Uh, but I'm one of the pastors here and um, have the privilege of taking us into God's word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just, again, this morning want to admit that we come to you um, needy, as little children, and Jesus, you said that unless we become like little children, we can 't enter the kingdom of heaven, so that 's how we come to you this morning, recognizing that we have nothing to bring, um, but that you have chosen through your Son to delight in us, and that if we accept your invitation, that we can become children of God, and so that 's what we want to do, and even in a fresh way today, if we 've already stepped into that relationship with you again, we just want to acknowledge we want to lay down kind of our some of our adultness (laughs) that we try to bring to you and we just want to lay it down this morning and just ask for your help um, recognizing that even if we want to understand your word rightly that we need your holy spirit to teach us this morning and so we just ask that you would do that would you speak to us we thank you in a room this size um and with so many people coming from so many different backgrounds, and we've all had different things going on in our lives, um, even just this last week, and you know how to meet us exactly where we're at and to speak directly into the reality of our life right now, what we need to hear from you. And so we just trust that you'll do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so um, I have been, you know, I. I don't know about you, but just be being a dad, um, <clears throat> and Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Uh, moms are amazing, so I think my mom will probably watch this at some point. So, hi, mom, I love you. Um, and uh, my wife, Amberlynn, is an amazing mom. Her mom is actually here, and her mom's mom is here too. So we got moms up the wazoo at our house right now. It's <laughs> it's been an awesome it's been an awesome weekend, um, <clears throat> but. As a as a dad, one of the things that that you know, there's there's so much going on. We've got three young kids five, three, and ten months, and um, so there's a it's a lot of effort. Sometimes there's not a lot of time, you know, for me it feels like. Um, and so one of the things I've been feeling recently is that I should go. Like I should maybe try to get back in shape a little bit. And I've never really been any shape but round. But I was like, maybe I should work on that. So I, I was like, well, a good place is like, what do you do when you want to get in shape? You go to a gym. So I was like, okay, I'll go around and check out some gyms. And um, I decided to go with the Y because they had the most comfortable couches. <laughs> so that was, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. But here's, here's the reality is I think... You know, obviously that very dumb joke was me trying to make a point that often, I think in church and in life, we sometimes, uh, have a similar silly viewpoint that sometimes we miss the point. You don't choose a gym based on the couches. It's fine. If your gym has couches, that might be nice, but I'd also caution you against sitting on couches in gyms. It just seems they might be kind of sweaty. Um, But we, our priorities, when we think about what does it mean and what's important when it comes to gathering as a church, I think sometimes our priorities can get a little skewed. So it's like, I want to grow in my faith. I want to um, encounter Jesus. I want to have some community. And those are all good things. But then what are the things that we actually are thinking about as we're gathered together? It's like, oh, those people were kind of (laughs) mean. I don't know if I should go there again that could be valid. I don't really like the music there. Maybe that's valid too. You know, and we all, we all have different priorities when it comes to what, uh, what we look for and what we think about. And I think sometimes we can wrongly attribute those things to being what God cares about. Sometimes even as we communicate that stuff with one another, Our opinions very quickly can become God's opinions, but what we're going to see today in Revelation as Jesus begins speaking directly to several churches um, is we'll get a very clear look at what are Jesus's priorities when he thinks about a church. And so I think it will be helpful for us today as we dive in, and we, uh, he writes seven letters to seven churches, um, and we're just going to go through the first three today and kind of pull out four different things that um, I think just in very simple ways highlight some of the things that Jesus cares about as he's talking to these churches. So let's start. We're going to be jumping in in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Last couple of weeks, Chad's taken us through the... Uh, the first chapter of Revelation, and uh, Jesus has been kind of revealing Himself in this amazing, um, and John is John is recounting um, who Jesus is, and the and and just kind of this incredible view, this picture of of who Jesus is—Jesus, God, eternal—and and so that's kind of where we're jumping in, and so I, I don't want us to lose that sense of awe, that sense of like. Am I supposed to be here? Because again, one of the things that is pretty clear in God's word is that when we gather, there's a special experience of his presence, even here as we gather. So that same Jesus, who, where John sees him and goes, I'm dead. He's here with us today, and we want to hear his words as he speaks to these churches. So let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you've persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as we go through these three letters, we'll kind of see this, this cadence that Jesus takes. And the first thing he always does is kind of announce or reveal something specific about himself. Now, there's, there's many um, attributes of Jesus. There's many things, there's so many words that we could use to describe who he is. And, um, but there's something significant about when he comes to each of these churches and says something very specific about himself that applies to their situation directly. And so the first thing that Jesus says is that he is, he says he's the one that holds the seven stars, which we learned in chapter one, are kind of seven angels or messengers that are assigned to each of these seven lampstands, which are the, these seven churches. And so we see that Jesus is kind of announcing himself like, I am Lord, not only over angels, like the spiritual realm, my spiritual messengers and, and, and the, the people that I entrust to do kind of things in the spiritual realm for me, but I'm also Lord over my churches, my physical people who I entrust to kind of be my messengers or be my body. And so he's connecting these things for us and he's highlighting his his lordship and also his presence with and among us. And so again, the seven lampstands, he's talking both, and and this is one thing that we'll see in revelation where you when you ask the question is it this or is it this a lot of times the answer is yes so when he's talking about seven churches obviously he's talking to seven very specific churches like this church in Ephesus. And again, one of the things we have to remember is that at this, at this point, the church was so new that they hadn't had much time to have all the disagreements we've had over the years and split into whatever thousand denominations. So it's like literally, if you're part of the church in Ephesus, like that's it. It's like there's just, you're just the Christians in Ephesus. And so that's who he's talking about is Christians who live in Ephesus and not necessarily like one building of Christians, Um, but they were gathering in houses and different places. Wherever they had space to meet, they would get together. But also this idea of seven, and again, it's, it's, it's a very common biblical theme, but seven is always used as kind of a number of completion, and it harkens back to in Genesis that After seven days, God kind of completed creation, and so on. One hand, it's it's these seven individual churches that God is talking to very specifically, and at the same time, it's all churches. It's the complete like the complete family of God all around the world today. And then even as he says, you know, as we read at the end, anyone who has ears, hear what I'm saying to this church. So as this is written for sure directly to this church that existed. 2,000 years ago, it also is directed to us. And so he first speaks some really encouraging words. And this, this tends to happen. He tends to, with most churches, there's a couple that don't get very much, which is, that would be a bummer. But the Ephesians get some encouraging words from Jesus. And a couple things he says, he says they've endured hardships well. And we'll talk more about that when we get, talk about uh, uh, the next church. Uh, but they've endured hardships well. And the other thing that he says, kind of specifically, is that they've guarded the truth against false apostles and false teachers. He also talks about the Nicolaitans, which we'll talk about again in, in the uh, uh, coming church. But um, the first thing I think that Jesus, we see that Jesus cares about and that he's commending this church in Ephesus for is Jesus wants a church that has solid theology. And I think this feels natural to see because I think this is something that we tend to care about a lot in the West. Um, We have a lot of people that spend a lot of time studying and doing a lot of, you know, studying the scriptures. And and also like when most people, I, I think a lot of Christians, when they are looking for a church. They're trying to find one that kind of matches with what they've discovered to be what they think is a kind of a sound theology. So this sort of makes sense to us. It's kind of like, I think to me, it's like the least surprising one. Uh, but he's commending this church for their um, for their solid theology and that they, they have a good sense of what is true and what is not. When people come speaking false things, that they are able to recognize that. And um, The reason that Jesus cares about our theology is because he wants us to truly know who he is. People can tell you all sorts of stuff about Jesus. And people who who aren't even Christians, they have a lot to say about who they think Jesus is and was and what he was about. But who is Jesus really? And what is he about? What is his mission? What does he care about? And these are the things that we, again, we want to go back to God's word and see what has he revealed about himself. Because people have, I mean, have for sure since Jesus came, they've always been trying to make Jesus be about whatever their agenda is. it's part of the reason why he was crucified, because he wouldn't get behind the agenda of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, kind of the the ruling religious class at the time. He wouldn't get behind their agenda, which was kind of to be this arrogant religious ruling class that had some authority and power. And Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't get on their page. And so they didn't like that about him. And one thing I think that always is, is just prevalent wherever you go. And even, in our, even for ourselves personally, that we, um, we can make Jesus in our own image very easily. It can very easily be our opinions. that it's like, oh, I just, I feel good about this. And you know what? I think Jesus feels good about this. But we don't really always know if we're not coming back to his word. And so, again, it's just something that really matters to Jesus. He wants us to know who he is. And we, you know, so we're faced with false teaching all the time. I think it's it's a little more obvious, hopefully, to us when it comes from outside the church. But we, you know, we have cultural messages all the time that aren't necessarily true. And it's not always about God and our theology. Um, theology meaning the study of God, right? But... Uh, it just, just the way that we view life and, you know, just different cultural message that, that we can pick up along the way. Um, but I think it's, it's most dangerous and what Jesus is ca- commending them for specifically is that when it's somebody who comes and they either open the Bible or in some kind of, some way they kind of take this authority that this is what God wants. This is what God cares about. This is what God says and they're either you know, applying the Bible wrongly, they're adding to it, they're removing things from it, they're twisting it to their agenda. And certainly we do need to be on guard against false teaching. It's important. And I mean, again, even, even in our space here, I hope that you're not just taking what we say at face value, that you weigh it against God's word. And, um, and, and that you know, certainly uh, there should be some back and forth uh, even in our gatherings. But, you know, some of the things <clears throat> that, uh, that people will say kind of that, that you can find this stuff anywhere, like um, just a general false teaching that you'll hear is God wants you to be happy. And it's like, wow, that's great because that's what I want too. I'm I'm glad that we're on the same page. And here's the thing is like, does God care about our happiness? I think yes. Not always in the way that we think though, right? He certainly wants us to have joy and to have peace and to find a place of rest in relationship with him. But it's not always the way that we want. And so we personally can be, in danger of misinterpreting God's word, even just me opening it by myself and reading it, taking things out of context, twisting things to what I think or what I want. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's important that we continue to gather together because the way that God speaks now in his church is in community. So if I open God's word and I see something, I bring that up in community and people can test and weigh that and be like, does that seem accurate? To what I see in, in scripture. And sometimes it might be like, yeah, that's, that's a really good insight. And sometimes it's like, no, Daniel, you're dumb. And either way, it's good that we do that. It's part of the reason why we gather. We don't gather just so we have this one person who's like the expert that just tells us everything to think. We, we gather around God's word and together collectively uh, hear from his spirit Through His Word, and so there should be, especially here in our church. You know, this is the place that we have some control over because we're here. (laughs) We get to interact with one another, and we get to. uh, There should be some push and pull, and some loving correction, and some encouraging one another. And it just made me think of, like, in the case of of um, Priscilla and Aquila, they saw this guy Apollos who was teaching, and they're like, uh you're doing a great job. A couple things that you should clarify though. You're, you're getting a couple of, these, couple of these details wrong. So they come alongside and they help him out. So that's a case where it's like this guy genuinely cares about what God's word says, Apollos. He's like, I really want to really teach God's word to people. He's doing it from a genuine heart. He really want, like he has a reverence for God's word and that kind of stuff, but he's just not quite there on some things. So they lovingly come alongside and just instruct and teach and help him kind of get his theology straight. So that's one approach, right? And, and I think that's good. I hope, I hope that's kind of what we experience around here is that we can come alongside and just lovingly help one another have a, have a, have a deeper understanding of Jesus and his word. Um, and, and I think it's important that the gathering is important because uh, what happens a lot, and, I, and I've seen this with a lot of people, there's, there's, there's people that I've interacted with who might have a lot of Bible knowledge, but they don't, they, they don't have a lot of humility <laughs> for any kind of back and forth. And what often happens is that you kind of see in the fruit of somebody's life how well the scriptures is richly dwelling within them. You can have a lot of knowledge, but just getting siloed by yourself you're not really making God your authority. (laughs) You're the authority because you're the one whose your own interpretation is the only one that matters to you. So it's important to be gathering. It's important to be getting other insight from other people who are in the church and and so that, that's, one, that's one factor, is just kind of in and amongst our own body. And then there's also, we just need to be on guard against more overt false teaching. Those who claim to, to, to know God and know what He wants, but they're lying. And so you could go online and listen to countless of hours of sermons on YouTube or whatever and that's great. That can be encouraging. That can be helpful. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to turn anybody off to that because I think that can, be, that can be a good thing. But it's also, I think it's a good thing to ask this person that I'm listening to, what kind of access am I giving them to my heart and my mind? And do I really know the fruit of their life? Because it's, I'll, I'll just tell you as a pastor, it's easy. It'd be very easy for me to get up here and paint whatever picture of myself for you that I want to paint. I get lots of time to prepare and I can write it all down and read it off a page if I wanted to and give you a very specific image of what I want you to think about me. And if that's the only interaction that we ever got, you might be like, wow, Daniel's a really good guy. And then I go home and my wife sees everything that I spoke about and rolls her eyes because at home I'm a, I'm a big fat phony and she knows it. Because she really sees the fruit of my life, that it's not matching up. I can talk a big game up front, but if it's not real behind the scenes, is it even real in the first place? It might be accurate. It could be accurate, or it could not be. But either way, I would just say um, good theology doesn't simply come from study. Any of us could go out there. I I read like three or four different commentaries on Revelation this week, and those guys had some great stuff, and I could have just plagiarized it all. And you would have no idea because <laughs> you haven't read Beale's shortened commentary. Emphasis on shortened. Okay. I need the shortened. Um, but whatever. So like it doesn't come simply from study, but it also comes from putting it into practice. And that's what, I mean, James talks about this. Jesus talks about these things that taking his words and actually putting them into practice. That, that good theology is about putting it into practice. See, on, on, the, on the flip side versus some, you know, guy on YouTube that you could watch, on the flip side, I, I think about my dad. I know my dad really well. I've seen him in lots of different kinds of circumstances. And I know that his, I, I've seen the fruit of his life. It's good fruit. I know that his intent when he is, when we're, when we're interacting, when he's offering advice or he's pointing, pointing me to something and teaching me something. I know his, uh, that he, he loves me and his intent is to, you know, do what's best for me. So I, have, I am a very, very open to anything that my dad has to say. Now, of course, I still test and weigh that because it's, it's my responsibility what I do. I'm not going to stand before the Lord and say, well, my dad said this or so-and-so told me to do this, so I did it. And, you know, I'm accountable for my actions and the way that I live my life. But I'm very open to what my dad says because I know him. I've seen the fruit of his life. So these are things that I think it's important that we're thinking about. We're not just looking at the words that people are saying, but the life that they're living as well. Um, and, uh, and you know, you may have some favorite people that you like to listen to or watch their sermons or, or different teachings that you listen to. I'll just say be a little more guarded if you don't know their life and just maybe be a little more intentional testing and weighing what they say. And um, and then interact with other people in God's word. So, good theology is important to Jesus, but it's not all that he wants. And I think it's a little jarring to hear this praise that he has for this church about their endurance and 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 their and their good theology. And then he says, "But you've abandoned the love you had at first. Repent, or I'll remove your lampstand." It's kind of like, <laughs> okay, whoa! It sounded like they were doing really good. And I think for most of us, we go to a church and we're like, wow, they have really good theology. And and it's like, that's it. And we can just like, sweet, we'll just stay here then. That's important. But Jesus also is thinking about, he wants a church that loves well. It's deeply important to him. In fact, it's so important to him in this this whole remove your lampstand thing. It's like he's saying that you will no longer be a church. <laughs> You'll no longer be my witness on this earth. I'm going to take that away from you. Because if you can't do it in a loving way, you might have good theology. You might know the Bible really well. But if you can't, if you can't actually engage in a loving way, then you're not mine and it's a little shocking and it's it, it's it's convicting i think as well because um as as you re- again as i was reading these different commentaries and stuff it seemed like every person uh was taking a different stance on what they what jesus was talking about when he meant like g- abandoning your first love so some think that and you've maybe you've maybe heard it preached all three different ways that it's like their, their, just kind of their love for God, their affection for God and their intimacy and relationship with him. Um, others sometimes think it, it just means like the mutual love experience within the church community. And then others take it to mean kind of they've, they've abandoned doing the things they did at first, meaning like being on mission with God, reaching out to uh, the people around them, the lost the lost around them. And I think we're on pretty safe ground to kind of mix all those things together. Because I think that's how Jesus views love. Um, When Jesus talks about love, he says, you know, when, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first one is love the Lord your God. But, and he couldn't just leave it at that. He said, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus always connects. I mean, and it's, it's over and over and over again. When Jesus is restoring Peter, he's like, Peter, do you love me? Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then, then feed my lambs. He does that three times. Like, you love me? Okay, then take care of people. <laughs> love other people. Or like in Matthew 25, when Jesus is giving this, this view of the final judgment, he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And, uh, and actually, John, who's writing Revelation, writes in 1 John that if you don't love your brother who you can see, then how could you say that you love God who you can't see? So it's just inextricably linked, loving God and loving people. And God has given us as the church, this mission to make disciples of all nations and so it just makes sense to me that all of those things need to be happening for us to be considered a real, genuine body of Christ. That if we're going to be his, his messengers on earth or, his, um, or part of his body, that we should be doing the things that he cares about. He, and Jesus also told his disciples, he's like, you know how the world's gonna know that you're mine? He doesn't say, because you have good theology. Although he obviously does care about that. That is important to him. That's not what he says. They will know that you're mine because of the way that you love one another. And so certainly this is, I mean, there, there is definitely not a church that is perfect at this. And certainly we are not perfect at this. But I think it's, it's worth it for us to continue to pursue this and keep asking the question, what does it look like for us to love the way that God wants us to love, both having having a love and affection for him, for Jesus, but also for the way that we experience that amongst one another and the way that we do that to those who are outside of our community currently, those who are lost and don't know Jesus, that if we don't love, we stop being a church. <laughs> if we aren't on mission with with what Jesus is about in this world, then we're not really doing the church stuff. See, I think ultimately the goal of theology is love, not strictly just emotional love that we maybe think about. Um, although that's part of it. I think, I think real love does interact with our emotions, but it's really, the, it, it's, it's an act of dying to ourself for the sake of God and for other people. Um, and I think that's what good theology really leads us To do. And so the promise that comes at the end, and this is one thing that Jesus does at the end of each of his letters, the promise that comes at the end is he says that um, they will be given the opportunity or the privilege of eating from the tree of life. So again, it's an imagery of being in God's presence, his eternal presence, which gives us eternal life in his presence. And it's also the the idea of, of, of eating this fruit, it's kind of this idea of just delight and enjoyment. And kind of just being eternally satisfied in God's presence. So Jesus in all of these things, it's like he's giving some encouragement. He's giving some pretty harsh rebuke. And he's framing all of it between who he is and what he promises us. Okay, so we've got two more churches that we're going to get through. We're going to speed up a little bit. But let's go verses 8 through 11 here. It says, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. So again, in the beginning, Jesus highlights specifically about himself, him as the resurrected one. And he does that to a church that's experiencing some significant suffering and is really under the weight of persecution. And I think it's, um, it's not as, as I read this It's not what I would want to hear I just imagine being a, Being one of the believers In Smyrna And being like Alright here's the letter to us And you open it up and you read it And you're like Oh no Oh no Are you sure this was for Smyrna Can we take the Ephesus one instead? (laughs) Because he's like, I know the difficulty that you've been facing. And the next thing you want him to say is, and I'm about to come and take it all away. And it's, but he says, no, it's going to get a lot worse. And you're like, oh no. And I just wonder as Christians in America, if we have any category for this. I just feel like I don't have any category for this. It feels silly when we talk about persecution. Now, on one hand, I think all of us as Christians, like we all, and and everybody in life in general, we all experience pain and suffering, okay? And in one sense, it's not really worth comparing one person's pain to another um, because all pain is real pain and it's all truly difficult and things like that. So it's you know it's not to roll our eyes at like oh that's not really that hard because look at this person, like that's not really helpful. It's not really practical. But on the other hand, I think it does give us a sense of context when we think about what these believers are facing, where Jesus is saying Satan is going to throw some of you into prison. And I think it's interesting that um, he says you know, the devil's gonna throw you into prison. Because obviously it's not like, you know, not the devil himself, but Jesus is, again, he, one thing he's doing in all of these churches and all these letters is he is just like elevating two people's awareness that there is a real spiritual battle going on. And he's answering kind of the, the implied question of like, why are things so difficult? <laughs> because there's a spiritual battle going on. And it's, it's not just like, you know, this kind of light little like, oh, sometimes, you know, it's like this heavy fighting that's going on. And so the thing that I see here is Jesus wants a church that's faithful in suffering. Again, that's not one of our priorities necessarily when we think about what does it mean to be a part of a church? That isn't necessarily one of the things that, like, if if you're in the process of, like, looking for a new church, you're not like, what's a church that's really going to help me be faithful in suffering? Or where do I see people, you know, kind of sharing in their sufferings together, helping one another? That should be, and I think as we talk about it, it's like, yeah, that does sound, that sounds important, but that doesn't tend to be on the forefront of our mind when we're looking at what does, what kind of church should I be a part of, or what does it, what does it mean, or what matters to Jesus when it comes to being part of a church? But here's the thing, is that why, why is our suffering important to Jesus? Why is he highlighting this for this church? Well, I think at at a very basic level, Jesus conquered Satan through suffering. And we shouldn't expect it to be any different for us. That he conquered death through death. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul writes about how, you know, he talks about how the foolishness of God or the thing that, you know, God's plans that seem like that could never work. Is, is wiser than the smartest thing that people can come up with. Or the weakness of God, again, in quotes, right? The things that we're like, that, couldn't, that would never work. Like, God's like, okay, I need to redeem the world. I think I'm going to send my son to die on a cross. It's like, what? <laughs> that makes no sense. That doesn't work. God, that's not how things work. That's not how you take power. That's not how you conquer. That, but that is... That is how God conquers. And we're kind of, I mean, to, just spoiler alert, but Revelation chapter 12 specifically says that the saints overcame Satan. It says this, by, by the blood of the lamb, so what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, by, be, by being a witness to Jesus and holding fast to who he is and what he's done on their behalf, and that they did not lie, love their life unto death. That they were willing to go all the way to death holding on to Jesus. That's how, that's how we conquer. <laughs> and it's very contrary to what most people will tell you, even a lot of Christians. They will tell you that we conquer by our vote, or we conquer by our whatever. You fill in the blank. That is not how a Christian conquers. We conquer by suffering, <laughs> that is how we conquer. That is how we overcome. That is not a fun message. But man, if I, I can't tell you how just gripped I felt this week as I read this. And I was like, man, I don't, Jesus, I don't, like, you, do you know how sometimes it's like when you go to the doctor and they're like, does this hurt? <laughs> and you're like, ah, yeah, that's the spot. Yup, That's what I feel like Jesus does in some of these passages, for me at least. I don't know if you feel that. But this is how a Christian conquers, through suffering, guys. So what does that mean when we're facing suffering? It means that we need to look at with what Jesus says. He says, and, and this is something that I think is, is difficult. He says to this church, he says, hey, I see your affliction. I see your poverty. And he doesn't say, and it's okay, guys. I'm going to provide for you. He says, but you are rich. Do you feel, I don't know. Do you feel that with me a little bit? It's like, that's not, Jesus, that's not helpful. This is what it made me think of though. Two things. It made me think of the Beatitudes. <laughs> she said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those when you're, you know, when, when people persecute you. Jesus has a totally different view of what it means to be, Wealthy, (laughs) to be satisfied, to be well taken care of. It also made me think of Luke 17, where Jesus tells this short parable where he's like, what servant when they come in from working all day will go to their master and say, all right, make me some food now. I've been working hard all day. He's like, no, the servant comes in from their work out in the field. They come in and then they make their master food. And then once all of that is done, then they eat and they say, I was just doing my duty. I'm an unworthy servant. And I think so many. oh my goodness. Again, it just like, to me, it just feels so silly to talk about persecution or suffering for in, even in my own life. Because I feel like I haven't, I, I just have no concept of what that even means for a lot of people and for sure for this, this church. But I do know that even still, I can take the stuff that to me feels like pain, feels like suffering. I can be like, Jesus, look at all I'm doing for you. And I think my attitude needs to be something more along the lines of, man, I'm just glad that I'm in the house. I'm just glad to be part of this family. I'm just an unworthy servant. So even though not everyone's entrusted with the same kind of suffering, we are all called to endure and to endure it faithfully. And I think what that means is whatever kind of stuff that we go through in life, it doesn't mean that it's always like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. I don't care. It's like, this is really hard. And I think all over scripture, especially in the Psalms, it gives us language for what to do when we're going through suffering. Why God, where are you? How long? That kind of stuff. That's all in the Bible. So we're good to go on that. But the reality is, is I think that's, that's a piece of it. The, rea- like, the way that we go through suffering faithfully is to say, Jesus, this is hard, but I'm sticking with you. That even though I feel confusion, I bring my confusion to you. I feel this pain and this heartbreak and this, you know, I feel totally crushed. I feel totally overwhelmed. I bring it to you. I think that's what it looks like to go through suffering faithfully. And then, you know, ultimately Jesus has called us to do it to the point of death. Our whole life long to whenever we cross that finish line. And his promise is that to those who overcome, that we only die once. We only die once and we'll receive eternal life. So he's framing our suffering now in light of eternity. Scripture has a lot to say about that, but we got to keep moving. All right, verses 12 through 17. Last one, real briefly, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to uh, place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So so repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So again, Jesus emphasizes something about himself. And it's this double-edged sword. And really what he's saying is he ultimately has the ability to bring judgment and justice. And so he's framing that. He's saying, because you live in this place where Satan's throne is or Satan's dwelling place. And not 100% sure. Obviously, again, he's bringing the reality of, of a spiritual battle that's going on. Some scholars think that this has to do with some significant temples that were in Pergamum. There was a, it was a place of a lot of idol worship. They had some uh, and, and, the, and some really significant temples. Um, Caesar's temple was there. They had a temple to Zeus there. They also had a temple to, let me look up this name, Asclepios. Uh, which is a snake god of healing. So it could relate to kind of that that imagery of Satan in Genesis. Either way, Jesus is highlighting that, that spiritual reality and this battle is happening within this church. And so what we see in this passage is ultimately, I think Jesus wants a church that is holy. That Jesus cares about our holiness. So again, he's highlighting that there's these two kingdoms, his and Satan's. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Different ways that, that scripture kind of talks about that. But there's a spiritual component to everything we do. And he talks about these people, the the Nicolaitans. And nobody knows for sure what this is talking about, but the best idea comes out of this passage where he's relating the Nicolaitans and, and Balaam. And actually the etymology of the words is very similar. So it's like, Hebrew, Balaam, Greek, Nicholas, and basically it's like both of the names have very similar meanings, like he who conquers or he who overcomes the people, Um, but basically connecting them to the Old Testament story of Balaam, where he's this guy who essentially was trying to get Israel to sin so that they would fall out of God's favor, and then they could be defeated, and so it's like somebody who brings this um, this temptation to sin into the people of God so that they can be overcome by an enemy. And, <clears throat> um, and so probably uh, there were people who were, in, who were in the church who were living this kind of quasi-Christian lifestyle where they're like, yes, we believe in Jesus and we, we believe in his salvation, but wouldn't it be easier if we just also participated in kind of these cultural norms and so, I mean, it feels very present to me today, but basically a couple of the things that he highlights here, and if you remember when we were going through Acts, there's two things that the Jerusalem council kind of laid out for the Gentiles. Apart from belief in Jesus, like what does it mean to be a Christian? They say you have to believe in Jesus, obviously, but then you also stay away from food sacrifice to idols and you abstain from any kind of sexual immorality. So these are the particular two things that they highlight as important for just like living out your Christian faith. And <clears throat> so I think sexual immorality is pretty obvious to us, okay? That is all over the place, but basically it's any kind of sexual behavior or sexual experience outside of the, the confines of marriage between man and woman as God designed it. And so um, especially in these kind of uh greco-Roman culture, there was a lot of you know um, sexual uh, immorality that was associated even with with idolatry and temple worship and stuff like that um, and uh, and so there's there's a very strong spiritual component um, that they were like pretty conscious of that they would that they would go see a temple prostitute in honor of such and such God and so they were aware I think one of the one of the falsehoods that we believe in our culture a lot of times is that sex is just physical and we deny the fact that there is really a spiritual component and so just like with that there also is this spiritual component that they're bringing out with this idea of food sacrifice to idols Paul goes into depth um With that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and then kind of in chapter 10 too, he talks about not eating food sacrificed to idols. Part of it has to do with people's conscience, but then he also says in chapter 10, he says, even though we know that these are false gods, like Zeus isn't real, or like Caesar is not even alive anymore. So we know that like this isn't going to Caesar, this isn't going to Zeus, these are made up gods, there is a real spiritual or demonic component to this. So don't associate with this kind of stuff. So these are the things that people are like, oh, isn't it just easier to just be a part of this stuff? Because here's the thing, for them, um, even uh, this was such a deep held part of their culture that even like if you were going to go to a business meeting, They would generally have a business meeting in honor of a particular deity of the town that they're going to meet in or something to kind of give them a blessing. So they would like sacrifice and kind of have this meal, this business meal in honor of such and such a God. And so if you were a Christian and you're like, that's demon stuff. I don't want to be a part of that. That's going to have a real significant impact on your ability to make money and stuff like that. So there's some, there's, we start to see people aren't just doing this stuff because it's like, oh, I just want to do it. There's, there's not just, um, not just a, you know, I want to do this or I don't want to do this. There's, there's real ramifications even into people's livelihoods and things like that. So all of this stuff, um, uh, being connected again, Jesus is connecting it to a deeper spiritual reality. And I just wonder for us in the West, we tend to deny that there's a spiritual reality. We tend to think that everything we do is just a physical thing. It's just material. That's all there is. And what, again, what we're seeing highlighted by Jesus is he wants a church that is holy That what we do in word and in deed is actually things that are in line with his kingdom, and his priorities, and aren't participating with, you know, as James says, even even um, even selfish ambition is demonic, (laughs) like it comes from hell. So there's a there's just this reality that Jesus is highlighting for us. So I know that was a lot, and. I was like, Chad, I'll do three churches. That's as many as I could possibly cover in this amount of time. And uh, I'll do my best. And I went over. So we're going we're gonna to stop. I'm going to ask the band to come up. But here's the, here's the last thing that I want to encourage us to do. I want to just encourage us to stand up as we wrap up. So if you'd stand on your feet. And just as a, just as a response, this is just something that... Um, that it was kind of just a prayer posture that the early church would always take. So you know that as we're reading about these churches and stuff, this is something they would do all the time. That as they um, would pray, they would stand, they would open their hands, and they would pray in this posture. So we're going to pray in this posture. And Father, we just recognize that you're here. Um, But again, just as the early church would pray, we just pray, come Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Teach us, confirm Your Word in us, and um, I just invite you, as um, as we stand here and wait, the, the worship team will take us into a song, but no kind of no manipulation or you know no pressure or anything. Um, but I think it's important that, again, that, that we learn to be a church that, that moves both, um, not just in our thoughts, that we're not just moved internally, but that if God is putting something on our heart, that we would respond. So just as a sign of response, I'm just going to invite you, if, if you feel like the Lord is, is stirring something in your heart, and again, I know I, did a, I probably did a terrible job today trying to go through all this stuff and explain it, But Jesus we just give you access to our hearts today and so if you feel like he's he's drawing you this morning again no no hype and no manipulation but if you feel like he's he's stirring something in your heart I'm just going to invite you to to actually come to the front not to embarrass you or not to make a you know not to make a spectacle or anything like that but just as a way of of taking a real step of obedience it takes a little bit of courage um but would you just come to the front? And all, all I'm going to ask you to do is just just stand here in the front and just receive from the Lord. And so, if that's something you want to do, I invite you to come up here. I'm just going to be up here with you, and we're just going to allow the worship team to kind of sing this song over us and allow the Holy Spirit to do what He wants in our life as we just hold our hands in openness to Him. So let's let's respond now to the.